So if you could open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, and I will be reading uh, verse 5 all the way to verse 13 for the context of the uh, passage. But I will be expounding the uh, Lord's Prayer from verse, uh, verses 9 to 13. And that will be my text this morning. Matthews five uh, six verses five to eight. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full, but you when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Verse 9, pray then this way. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word, especially how we could pray and how we could bring our petitions before you and Father, as we uh, study and listening, uh, may that your word transform us, that we may be more like Christ each day. We know that we will not be perfect here on this side of the world until we, our body is glorified. So we thank you. We thank you for that hope. And we thank you for your word. Father, I pray that the word, your word, would encourage our people here. And if anything, Father, I say it's just my opinion. I, I trust that you will use it accordingly, and your word should be the one that our people should be obedient to it and appropriate into their own lives. For that, Father, we thank you. We give you all praise in Christ's name. Amen. So about 39 years ago, I had, I had the options to memorize the Lord's Prayer or the Apostles' Creed from my confirmation class at First Covenant Church of St. Paul. And I have been only in the United States for two, little over two years. And uh, I thought that was probably the shorter one and the easier to understand. <laughs> so I picked that one. Uh, and my English was pretty minimal at the time. So I didn't, you know, have the grasp for the Lord's Prayer. But I said I would mem memorize that one. So I told my pastor... And I remember asking 
why is it our daily bread? Because to me, I cannot relate it to that because I thought, can I say our daily rice? <laughs> okay? And just to give you, you, you that kind of friend of mine, okay? So that's, I, I learned the Lord's Prayer, probably the first one that I memorized. So that's a long time ago. But from the text, I drew out the following. So if you could reference or refer to your bulletin, uh, three points I want to bring. One is who God is, his relationship to the believers, and he is to be exalted. That's verse 9. Point number two, God reigns and rules all. Verse 10. And point number three, God is the source of for believers, provision, pardon, and protection. Verses 11 to 13. And as I said earlier, many Christians have memorized the Lord's Prayer so that they can recite often. But as beautiful as it is, it was not given for that purpose. In fact, after Jesus gave it, no one in the New Testament, recited, not even Jesus himself. Remember, in Luke 11, 1, the disciple did not ask Jesus to teach them a prayer, but to teach them how to pray, to pray. There is a significant difference. Jesus preceded prayer by saying, pray then this way, which literally means pray along these lines. The Lord's Prayer was a general pattern for all prayer. And although it was, although it was not recited, its principles are evident in all New Testament, uh, Testament prayers. Jesus gave six elements that constitute true prayer. The Lord's Prayer teaches us to ask God for six things. One, God's name be honor. Two, God brings his kingdom to earth. Three, God does his will. Four, God provides our daily needs. Five, God pardons our sins. And six, God protects us from temptation. So those are the six elements throughout this prayer. Each request contributes to the ultimate goal of our prayer, which is to bring glory to God. The last three are the means by which the first three are achieved. As God provides our daily needs, our daily bread, pardon our sins, protects us when we are tempted, he is exalted. His name, his kingdom, and his will. If you understand and follow Christ's pattern for prayer, we can, can be sure, be assured that we are praying as he instructs and whatever we ask in his name, he will do. He will do so that the Father may be glorified in the, in the Son. That's John fourteen thirteen. My question to you, do your prayers reflect the six elements outlined in the Lord's prayers? If not, I encourage you to work on making them a regular part of your prayers. Let's look at the text. Matthew 6, 9. Pray then in this way, your Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. And my first point here is God, who God is, his relationship to believers, and he is to be exalted. 
Our Father who is in heaven, prayer begins with the recognition that God is our Father. And he has the resource to meet our needs. With God as our Father, our life has eternal significance. The term Father is one of the most commonly used terms in our prayers. And rightly so, because that's how Jesus taught us to pray. But as common as the term is to us, it is very uncommon to people of Christ's day. At that time, most of the people who worship false gods thought of them as distant capricious and immoral being who were to be feared. So think about that. I was raised in an animistic culture, a religion where demons are to be feared and we worship, people worship, people sacrifice animals for, for that, to, to appease the spirit. And we are to, be, are to fear them. Even the Jewish people who should have understood the fatherhood of God had removed themselves from his fatherly care through their sin and apostasy. Against that backdrop, Jesus' teaching was revolutionary. Jesus proclaimed God as a caring and gracious father who desires intimate fellowship with his children. And that fellowship can come only through faith in the Son, Jesus Christ. Our faith in Jesus Christ is what makes God our Heavenly Father. Jesus also revealed to us the Father's character in everything. And he said and did, When Philip asked Jesus to show him the Father, Jesus replied, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father, John 14, 9. Jesus also proclaimed God as Father who has all the treasures of heaven at his disposal, and who makes them available to his children so they might glorify him. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Matthew 6, 8. For your heavenly father knows that you need all these things. Matthew six thirty one. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Matthew 6.33 Our Heavenly Father loves us, listens to our prayers, and supplies our needs accordingly, accordingly to His abundant resources. When we hum- humbly approach God as our Father, we assume the role of a child who eagerly to obey his father's will and receive all the benefits of his grace. So I encourage you to look to God every day and live as a thankful and obedient child. Let's look at hallowed be your name. Prayer should always exalt God. God is holy and deserve our highest respect and our humble obedience. The Lord's prayer illustrates the priority that God should have in our prayers. Jesus began by exalting the Father. Hallowed be your name. His prayer literally begins and ends with God. Hallowed be your name exalts the name of God. The Lord sets a tone of worship and submission that is sustained throughout the prayer. 
where God's name is hallowed, he will be loved and revered, his kingdom eagerly anticipated, and his will obeyed. The word hallow in Matthew 6, 9 translates a Greek word that means holy. When Christ said, hallow be your name, he was saying in effect, may your name be regarded as holy. When we hallow God's name, we set it apart from everything common and give him the place he deserves in our life. Holiness also speaks of moral excellence and purity of God. He is called the Holy One, 1 Peter 1.15. God is pure and sinless in his character. character. That is why Isaiah pronounced a curse on himself when he saw the Lord and heard the angel crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah 6, 3-5. Hallow, when God's name also involves constant be aware of his presence. That helps us focus on his priorities and to see every aspect of our life from his perspective. That's what David meant when he said, I have said, the Lord continually before me, Psalm 16.8. Obedience, obedience is another way to hallow God's name. Our theology may be flawless and we may be constantly aware of his presence, but if we disobey him, we dishonor him. Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Matthew 5, 16. We are instruments through whom God displays his holiness in the world. His name is to be hallowed on earth as it is in heaven. It must first be hallowed in our own life. That occurs when we believe him, understand who he really is, maintain awareness of his presence, and obey his word. Your name. It speaks more than just a title such as God, Lord, or Jehovah. It speaks of God himself and is the composite of all his attributes. All of his attributes. Jesus prayed, I have manifested your name to the men who you gave me out of the world. They were yours and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. John 17, 6. Manifesting the priority of God in our prayers involves acknowledging who he is and approaching him with reverent, humble spirit that yield to his will. And we do that, and we, and he will hallow his name through us. Point number two, God reigns and rules all. Matthew 6.10, your kingdom come, your will be done, Honored as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come. When we pray your kingdom come, we are praying for Christ to reign on earth as he already does in heaven. We relinquish or surrender our will to Christ's sovereign rule. The word kingdom in this verse translates the Greek, a Greek word that means rule or reign. The phrase could be translated your reign come. Jesus uh, prayed that God would rule. God rule would be as apparent on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom was the central is- issues of Jesus in Jesus' ministry. 
Jesus proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom, Matthew 4, 23. He instructed his followers to make the kingdom a priority in their own lives, Matthew 6.33. After his death and resurrection, he appeared for uh, 40 days and gave the disciples further instruction about the kingdom. Acts 1.2-3. So when we pray your kingdom come, we are praying in God's sovereign reign, rule, uh, sovereign rule to be established on earth as it is in heaven. In one sense, the kingdom is already here in the hearts of believers. And that kingdom consists of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 14.7 But in another sense, the kingdom is yet future. Someday Jesus will return again to establish his kingdom on earth and personally reign over it. That is the aspect of the kingdom we pray in Matthew 6.10. Your kingdom come. In the fullest sense, this is an affirmation that we are willing to relinquish the rule of our life so the Holy Spirit can use us to promote the kingdom in whatever way he chooses. Sin and rebellion, rebellion are now, rebellions are now rampant. But when God's kingdom comes, he will done away with Revelation 27 and 9. In the meantime, the word of the kingdom continues. The work of the kingdom continues. And we have the privilege of promoting it through our prayers, faithful ministry. Someday Christ will return to earth to reign in his kingdom. In the meantime, he rules in the hearts of those who love him. Your will be done on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. Our prayers make a difference in praying for God's will to be done on earth is an aggressive prayer. This literally say, says, whatever God wished to have happen, let it happen immediately. As God's will is done in heaven, so let it be done on earth. This is a prayer for active commitments to God's will. Many people don't pray like this because they don't understand God's character. They think their prayers don't matter and God will impose his will on them no matter what they do. They tend to pray with passive resignation, indifference, resentment. Godly prayers make a difference. James 5.16 So commit yourself to praying expectantly, knowing that God is gracious, wise, and always respond for his glory and for our highest good. Romans 8.28 Many people assume that somehow everything that happened is God's will. But that is not true. Lives destroyed by murderers, aggressors, family, families broken by adultery are not God's will. Children and adults ravaged by abuse or crippled by disease are not God's will. God uses sin and illness to accomplish his own purpose. Purposes, Romans 8.28. But they are not his desire. Eventually, God will destroy all evil and will fulfill his purposes perfectly. Revelation 20, 10-14. But that has not yet happened. That is why we must pray for his will to be done on earth. We can't afford to be passive or indifferent in our prayer, we must pray aggressively 
and not to lose heart. Luke 18.1 David prayed, Make me understand the way of your precept so I will meditate on your wonders. I shall run the way of your commandments for you will enlarge my heart. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes and I shall observe Observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. When we truly, when we truly pray for God's will to be done, we are aggressively pursuing his will for our own life and also rebelling against Satan. His will, or his evil world system, and everything else that is at odds with God, with God's will. Point number three, God is the source for believers' provision, pardon, and protection. Matthew six eleven. Give us this day our daily bread. God is glorified when he meets our needs. God is the source of every good gift. In America, the land of abundance, praying for our daily bread hardly seems necessary. During my childhood, I was in the refugee camp. And I know what hungry is. Uh, I raised two children in this country, and they had abundance. They never know what hungry is. So I know what hungry is. And praying for food, we have so much here, so we may not think of that. But Matthew six eleven is not talking about food only. It is a statement depending on God and an acknowledgement that He alone provides all of life's basic necessities. Sad to say, however, many people today have reduced to prayer to a means of self-fulfillment. We are to give God the privilege of revealing His glory by meeting our needs in whatever he chooses. If we, if we demand, demand things on him, we are likely to become frustrated or to question him when we don't get what we want. And that is a serious sin. Scriptures remind us that God is omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent, is all-powerful, and the sovereign ruler, rulers of the universe. For Christians to pray as if God was a puppet whose strings they yank with their prayers seems not only potential superstitious, but blasphemous as well. God has given us everything, every good thing to enjoy, including rain to make things grow, minerals to make soil fertile, animals for food and clothing, and energy for industry and transportation. Everything we have is from God, and we are to be thankful for it at all. And as Christians, we need to be thankful. As you know, this week my heart is very full. My cup is overflow. Jesus said in Matthew seven eleven, If you then, being evil know how to give good gift, gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? James said, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. James 
Unbelievers don't acknowledge God's goodness. Though they benefit from him every day, they attribute God's providential care to luck or faith and his gracious provisions to a nature of false God. They do not honor him as God or give him thanks. Romans one twenty one. How sad to see such ingratitude. And yet, how thrilling to know that the infinite God cares for us and supplies all our needs, every need. Don't ever take his provisions for granted. Look to God daily and receive his gifts with a thankful heart. Guard your prayer. Always be aware the enormous privilege you have to approach the infinite God and to receive his gracious provisions. Matthew 6, 12. And forgive us our debts as we have also, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And forgive us our debts. Believers confess their sins. Unbelievers denies, deny theirs. Forgiveness removes the guilt and penalty of sin and restores intimacy with God. As believers, we struggle with sin every day, and that should not be a surprise to us. As we mature in Christ, the frequency of our sinning decreases, but our sensitivity to sin increases. Let me say that again. As we mature in Christ, the frequency of our sinning decreases, but our sensitivity to sin increases. That does not mean we are more tempted, but that we are more aware of the subtleties of our sins of sins and how it dishonors God. Some people think we should not confess our sins or seek forgiveness. But the Lord instructs us to do so when he told us to pray and forgive us our debt. That is the believer's prayer for the Father's forgiveness. 1 John 1, 8-10 says, If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This passage tells us how to distinguish believers from unbelievers. Believers confess their sins. Unbelievers do not. The phrase forgive us implies the need for forgiveness. The word debt was translated from a Greek word that was used to speak of a moral or monetary debt. Here it refers to sins. When we sin, we owe to God a debt because we have violated His holiness. As believers, we, when we sin, we don't lose our salvation. Now listen to me, guys. Beloved, as believers, when we sin... We don't lose our salvation, but we'll face God's chastening if we don't repent. Hebrews 12, 6, 10 says, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives, but he, God, disciplines 
us for our good, so that we may share His His holiness. Man's greatest problem is sin. It renders him spiritually dead, alienates him from God and fellow men, plagues him with guilt and fear, and can eventually damn him to eternal hell. The only solution is forgiveness, and the only source of forgiveness is Jesus Christ. All sin is punishable by death. Romans 6.23 But Christ bore the sins of the world, thereby making it possible for us to be forgiven and to have eternal life through faith in Him. John 3.16 Scripture speaks two kinds of forgiveness, judicial and parental. Judicial forgiveness comes from God, the righteous judge, he, who wiped our sin off the record and set us free from the punish, punishment and guilt. At the moment of our salvation, God forgave all our sins, past, present, and future, and pronounced us righteous all eternity. That is why nothing can ever separate us from Christ's love. Romans 8, 38, 39. Parental forgiveness is granted to us believers by our loving Heavenly Father as we confess our sins see and seek, seek His cleansing. That is the kind of forgiveness Jesus speaks in Matthew 6.12. Think about this. When a child disobey, disobeys his father, the father-child relations is not severed. The child is still a member of the family. And there is a sense in which he is already forgiven because he is under the umbrella of his father's parental love. But some of the intimacy of their relationship is lost until the child seeks forgiveness. That is the idea in Matthew 6, 12. The sins committed as as a believer don't rob us our salvation but they do affect our relationship with God just think about what caused you to have not to have a sweet fellowship with God a sin in your own life if you trace it back it's always go to that God still loves us and will always be our heavenly father but the intimacy and the sweet communion we once had is jeopardized until we seek reconciliation by confessing our sins. As Christians, we are judicially forgiven and will never come into condemnation, but never presume on that grace. Make confession part of your daily prayers so sin never will never erode your relationship with your Heavenly Father. As we also have forgiven our debtors and an unforgiving Christian is a contradiction in terms of this phrase, as we also have forgiven our debtors. It is possible to confess our sins and still not know the joy of forgiveness. How? Failure to forgive others. Failure to forgive others. Look at Matthew 6.12 again. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Jesus did not say forgive us because we have forgiven others but forgive us as we have forgiven others. Unforgiving Christians contradict Matthew 6.12 because we are the forgiven ones. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, 
tender-hearted, forgiving each other, as just as God in Christ also have forgiven you. God forgave us, and in a measured amount, in measured amount that saving us from the horrors of eternal hell, that should motivate us enough to forgive any offense against other. And yet, some Christians still hold grudges. Don't let grudge stand between you and another person. It will rob you of the joy of God's forgiveness. One thing I want to share with you is this: We, as believers, we stand before Christ. Thank you, Lord. For saving me, die for me, forgive my sin. But we turn around his sin against me. I'm gonna hold grudge because your death is not good enough. Remember, Jesus rebukes the hypocrites. Verse 14 and Matthew said, "For if you forgive others." For their transgressions, their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive you your transgressions. And I'm talking about the parental forgiveness here. One of the most uh, passage that I go to about forgiveness is the. Matthew eighteen twenty five or twenty one with fifty three talk about the parable of the ungrateful slave, teaching about forgiveness, and that's the same what I just share with you. God forgive us so much, yet we go and we choke on our brother and sister or somebody because they sin against us, and we say, "Well, I'm not going to forgive you." I hope that you will see that in your own life. Matthew six thirteen, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We need to have a healthy sense of self distrust, distrust, and don't let our trials turn into temptation. Because temptation leads to sin. At the moment of your sal- uh, our salvation, judicial forgiveness cover all our sins, past, present, and future. Parental forgiveness restores the joy and sweet fellowship broken by any subsequent sins. But simultaneously, with the joy of being forgiven, is the desire to be protected from any future sins. That is the desire, desire expressed in Matthew six, thirteen, and do not lead us into temp, temp, temptation, but deliver us from evil. According to James one thirteen, God does not tempt anyone to commit sin. So why ask Him to protect us from something He apparently would not lead us into the first place? The word temptation here translates. A Greek word that can refer to either a trial that God permits in order to refine our spiritual character, James 1, 2 to 3, or an enticement that Satan or our flesh brings to incite us to sin. Matthew 4, 1, James 1, 13 to 15. Both trials... And enticement are valid translation. Because temptation, we need to have a healthy sense of self-distrust. Distrust. We need to carefully guard what we think, say, watch, read, and listen to. If we sense spiritual danger, we should run into the presence of God and say, Lord, I will be overwhelmed by this situation unless you come to my aid. That is the spirit of Matthew six thirteen. We are living in a fallen world, 
that throws temptation after temptation away. It is, it is only natural and proper for us believers to continually confess our sins, receive the Father's forgiveness, and plead with him to deliver us from the possibility of sinning against him in the future. Even though we know God uses trial for our good, it is still good to pray that he won't allow us to be caught in a trial that becomes irresistible temptation. That can happen if we are spiritually weak weak, or ill-prepared to deal with the situation. God will never test us beyond what we are able to endure. 1 Corinthians 10.13 But to resist temptation requires spiritual discipline and divine resources. Praying for God to to deliver us from trials that might overcome us is a safe guard against leaning on our own, our own strength and neglecting his power. When we experience trials, don't let them turn into temptations. Recognize God's purposes and seek his strength. I have so much to say. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The Lord's Prayer is a pattern for us believers to follow. Now, as I read, as I'm giving you this, I want you to just maybe listen to to the application of this. So the implication of the Lord's are profound and far-reaching. And here's in an unknown author put it this way. Listen to the application. I cannot say I'll if I live only for myself in a spiritual watertight compartment. I cannot say father if I do not endeavor endeavor each day to act like his child. I cannot say who art in heaven if I am laying up no treasure there. I cannot say hallowed be thy name if I am not striving for holiness. I cannot say, say, thy kingdom come if I'm not doing all my, in my power to hasten that wonderful day. I cannot say, thy will be done if I am disobedient to his word. I cannot say, in earth as it is in heaven, if I will not serve him here and now. I cannot say, give us our daily bread if I am dishonest or under the counter shopper. I cannot say forgive us our debts if I am if I harbor a grudge against anyone. I cannot say lead us into not and into temptation if I deliberately place myself in its path. I cannot say deliver us from evil if I do not put my whole armor of God. I cannot say thine thine is a kingdom if I do not give the king the loyalty do his do him as a faithful subject. <clears throat> I cannot attribute to him the power if I fear what men do. I cannot ascribe to him the glory if I am seeking honor only for myself. I cannot say forever. If the horizon of my life is bound completely by the things of time. Finally, here, let me exhort to you with this, these beloved, as believers, I exhort each one of you to apply the principle, principles in this marvelous prayer into your own life. Make God's kingdom your focus. His glory is, his glory your goal. His power, your strength. Make the Lord's Prayer a continual doxology in your own heart so that you may continue to experience His parental forgiveness and enjoy sweet fellowship with the triune God, our Heavenly Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. May you honestly can say, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
to you, unbelievers who are here with us or watching online, I am pleading with you. And please hear me out. I'm not being mean or harsh to you. What I'm going to say is the truth. There are, only, there, 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 are, there are only two kinds of people in this world. Believers, the children of God, or unbelievers, the children of the devil. And all will die one day after that. After what? After death, will face God's judgment. That's Hebrews 9.27. There's no second chance. There's no reincarnation. I know it is hard to hear the truth. I was born and raised in an animistic religion until God opened my heart to the gospel of Jesus Christ and he saved me. Animists fear of death and believe in, in, in reincarnation. They practice spirit, spirit worshiping and animal sacrificing through rituals and ceremonies not to atone sins but to seek favor and protection from the good spirits, for example, the spirits of ancestors, and to, to appease the bad spirits, the demon spirits. From the word of God, we know that God is the creator and lawgiver, and man, Adam and, Adam and Eve, disobey God and sin against him. As a result of their sin, all subsequent human being is born with sin, separated from God, their creator, and spiritually dead. About 2,000 years ago, God sent Jesus, his only son, to earth, conceived by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus himself is God, became man, and lived a perfect, sinless life here on earth so that he could die in our place as sinners. He could die as a perfect sacrifice to pay for all our sins. After Jesus was crucified, died on the cross, he was buried, then he raised, then God raised him from the dead on the third day. He then ascended, ascended to heaven and now is seated at the right hand of God the Father. God raised Jesus from the dead is to prove that God was pleased with Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. And because of that, God forgives all the sins of those who believe in Jesus. Jesus' death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection on the third day to save human from sin is the gospel or the good news of Jesus. When you believe the gospel, repent of your sins, meaning that you agree with God that you are a sinner and turn away from your sins and put your faith and trust in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of your sins, you then become a believer and receive God's forgiveness for all your sins in the past, present, and future. And that instance... You are made alive from the spiritual death. Death declare righteous in God's eye and will not receive eternal death when you die physically. The Bible calls this salvation. And it is a free gift from God. And there is absolutely nothing you can do to earn salvation but only through faith by believing in Jesus Christ alone. Nothing else. Nothing else. Not your good work. The Bible makes very clear that both believers and unbelievers will die physically. However, believers have hope, and that hope is eternal life in Jesus Christ. Because he, Jesus, had defeated death when he died on the cross and rose from the dead, death will be the last result of sin to be removed from this fallen world. If you're not a believer, I want you to know that God does not wish 
for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The gospel of Jesus Christ is available to you as a free gift from God. Again, there is absolutely nothing you can do to earn your salvation, except you must believe in the gospel. Repent of your sins and place your trust in Christ alone by faith alone for the forgiveness of your sins to receive salvation. Please know that God is just, is holy, is righteous, and because his divine characters, he hates sins and will punish sinners. So I urge you, I urge you not to gamble your life against the word of God. You don't know what tomorrow brings. Death, heaven, and hell are real. Are real. So I'm pleading with you, if you are an unbeliever, every single cemetery in the world is the testimony to God's, the truth of God's word. As it is written, there is, no, there is none righteous, not even one. Romans 3.10. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23 For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6.23 In many of Jesus' teachings, he often said the following to his listeners, He who has ears to hear, Let him hear. My plea with you is the word of Jesus in John 11, 25, 26. Jesus said to her, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I want to ask you, especially if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, I want to ask you, do you believe this? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. So much for your word and your truth. As we learn, we know that your will is to save wretched sinners like us so we could come to you, be reconciled. And Father, you have done that. And there are still many maybe out there that have yet to believe or maybe the sins in their own life they struggle with and they, they think that they would have to be clean to be perfect before they could come to you. But Father, we know that that's not what you want. We know that you saved righteous sinners who come before you with contrite heart, acknowledge our shortfall that we need a Savior, acknowledge our sins against you. And Father, we pray if anybody here in our midst here, that you will draw the person to you and that they will come to the saving faith of your Son, Jesus Christ, and that they would be able to experience the sweet fellowship with you, our Heavenly Father, and also have their sins forgiven, sin of the past, present, and future, and that they may have the joy and the peace in you. We thank you. We thank you for our salvation, that you made it possible for us Father, we love you and help us to walk in holiness, to be obedient to your word.
that you may be honored and glorified through our words and deeds and our behavior for the watching world. We pray all these in Christ's precious name. Amen.